Welcome to CoachCast from IECL by GrowthOps. CoachCast is a source of knowledge, insight, and wisdom for coaches and leaders looking to go further. In our podcasts, we take an immersive dive into the minds of extraordinary people and bring you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and influential coaches and thought leaders. In today's podcast, our host Renee Holder will be speaking with Robert Newman. Rob is an organizational psychologist, executive coach, director, and managing partner with Change Focus Group, an advisory and consultancy firm providing organizational psychology services, specializing in board, director, and executive dynamics, leadership coaching, and change management. Rob specializes in predicting people's motives and future actions in corporate settings, using principles from leadership psychology and behavioral economics to influence their decisions and coaching leaders to apply this for themselves. As a personality profiler, executive coach, and advisor on organizational culture, Rob has a reputation for insights into human nature and an ability to analyze complex organizational problems. I'm sure you're going to enjoy today's podcast. Let's welcome them both. Rob, you are an organizational psychologist, executive coach, director, and managing partner with Change Focus Group, an advisory and consultancy firm providing organizational psychology services. All of those things as charged. You specialize in board, director, and executive dynamics, leadership, coaching, and change management. A key element of your work is predicting people's motives and future actions in corporate settings, using principles from leadership psychology and behavioural economics to influence their decision, and coaching leaders to apply this for themselves. That's me. So, Rob, some of our listeners are coaches with an organisational psychology qualification, Mm -hmm. but many of them do not. So for those uh, who are curious to understand the connection... Could you talk to the application of organisational coaching in the executive coaching work you undertake? Very good. So organisational psychology, people would have, everyone would have heard of the term psychology. Organisational psychology is the application of that in corporate settings. But let's go right back to what a psychologist does because all org psychs started with a base of uh, psychology training. A psychologist looks at the um, Uh, individuals' values, personality, motives, drivers, talents, skills, hopes, fears, and how all those attributes are, intellect, and how all those attributes come together to affect behaviour and uh, whether the behaviour is effective or ineffective given the context it's within. So that's a psychologist. And so we have people that analyse people and provide counselling or interventions to help them get on in life better, deal with their depression or whatever. That's a psychologist. An organisational psychologist takes uh, all of those attributes and looks at them in the context of a job, of a workplace, of an organisational culture. So an organisational psych looks at how individuals bring their talents, experiences, values, humanity to the to the task they have to do and how collectively together they can operate with other individuals, so um, teams, uh, divisions, to produce outputs in a corporate setting. And I suppose from an organisational psych's point of view, we're interested in not just individuals, but how they look collectively and how human beings interact with structures and systems and work processes and business models within the context of an organisation and how 
all of those interactions between those systems are supported by um, strategy, are supported by culture, are supported by oversight and governance by management and boards. So an org psych looks at the whole system and how behaviour plays a big part of it, uh, both at the individual and collective level. And if I go a little bit further and say, what does an org psych do in a boardroom or an executive team? I'm looking at, in particular in boardrooms, I'm looking at how behaviours of individuals aggregate into collective behaviour to produce decisions. Because essentially, boards' main responsibility is to produce decisions that offer direction and oversight for an organisation. So I'm looking at how individuals perform collectively together to produce effective or ineffective oversight and governance decisions. And... We know there's a number of industries who are currently under increased scrutiny. Governance and that decision-making process you just referred to is really in the spotlight. So your work really gives you a unique insight into how this current environment is influencing conversations in the boardroom. Mm. What have you been hearing in recent times? Uh, Two um, key trends are emerging amongst directors in boardrooms now, and I think many of the listeners will be familiar with at least one of these. The first one is uh, directors are getting a clear message that they are going to be held responsible for the performance and behaviour within their organisation. Uh, I think there's been historically an expectation that directors were there to support and advise a management team who took responsibility for the organisation. But royal commissions of recent years and, and governance failures of recent years have pointed out very clearly that directors hold uh, a significant amount of liability when it comes to poor behaviour and poor performance by organisations. So directors are being shocked by that. Equally, what that's also leading directors to do, to recognise that the community expects them not just to be responsible for ensuring and maximising profits uh, and ensuring return for shareholders, which a number of directors thought was their primary role, represent shareholders. But the community doesn't expect just that anymore. They expect the board to represent the long-term interests of the organisation and especially its responsibilities and and, uh, um, interactions with the wider community. And so boards are recognising that their responsibilities are are to a wider stakeholder group than perhaps many of them thought. And many are moving and stepping up to that mark. So I think that's important. I think those two dynamics uh, are supported by a third dynamic. So what what the hell can these directors do about these responsibilities? They can't lead the organisation, they can manage the organisation. That's what they hire the C-suite for. So they're recognising as a collective, this is boards, are recognising that at times, even though we're the smartest people, uh, we are smart people and capable people, which most of them are, we have good intent, we still make bad calls. So boards are now looking at themselves and the way they make decisions and are aware that they haven't always, um, as a, as a, um, in industry, boards and directors haven't always done that job well. So they're wanting to open up that black box of how do we produce the decisions we have and how do we ensure that they're the right ones that the community and the rest of the world would expect of us. So, Rob, you mentioned a moment ago that we are talking about smart, highly qualified, mostly well-intentioned directors who are sometimes making some poor board decisions that don't reflect well on themselves and their organisation. So why is it? Why are these poor decisions being made? Okay. So the question is, um, why do good people end up sometimes doing bad things? I can probably answer this question from two perspectives. One would be, why does this happen in the C-suite? Why do the executives sometimes, who are all generally highly qualified, we, 
in Australia, we rarely have people at this level who um, uh, we would call incompetent. Uh, or even poorly intentioned, so that that's something we can wipe out. So it happens in the C-suite and it happens in the boardroom and for slightly different reasons. So I might start with the C-suite f- first. So why do highly experienced, capable, highly competent, motivated motivated in terms of their, their bonuses associated with some of these business outcomes, why do they at times in the C-suite, the, the executive team, why do they fail? Why do they make dumb decisions that lead to royal commissions, for example? And if I look at that in the, in the body of knowledge that we have accumulated in org psychology at least over time, we're actually seeing that all the capability and good intention in the world falls foul when individuals get into a group and derailer behaviours emerge. And so I think a number of your listeners would have heard of uh, leadership derailers. These are talents that are often quite heavy, uh, lots of them in executive roles. That's how people got to the top. They have these massive talents, but they get the dark side of the talent comes out when they're under threat or in contentious and difficult circumstances. And that's what we see in the C-suite. We'll see the dogmatic behaviours of a CEO. We'll see the competitive behaviours of um, um, other executives competing for the same pie in terms of budget or in terms of attention of the board. And those behaviours lead to poor decision-making. And associated with that is some technical elements, the the systemic stuff on um, looking at the uh, um, remuneration schedules what are people given bonuses for? And, and there's a lot of perversity in terms of bonus schemes. When you focus, get people to focus on, on increasing profits, what you'll find is that something else will be burnt to do that. And it might be, for example, they start selling stuff to people who they shouldn't be selling it to, etc. So the perversity associated with those schemes. But essentially the bad behaviour comes out in, in, in the boardroom and plays out in some of the systems and processes. So that's how, I suppose, smart, well-intentioned people operate badly in, in, in the uh, executive team. What does it look like in the boardroom? It's a little bit different because the board essentially only really has two roles. It doesn't run the business per se. It doesn't um, um, implement strategies or anything like that. That's the management team, the executive team. The board's job is to make decisions, number one, and provide oversight, number two. Really, those are the outputs of this group. So there's a group of people that come together for about... Uh, it'd be about 30 hours a year, once a month at the most, uh, to make these decisions and provide the steering of this organisation. So how do those well-intentioned people um, make de- and well-skilled people m- uh, make poor decisions? Um, we actually find those derailers come in again. This is the individual behaviours, but it actually creates a particular culture within the boardroom. And then we would have seen recently uh, ASIC put org sites in boardrooms to look at uh, is there certain types of cultures that are created in boardrooms that lead to f- governance failure? And there are some. And they're created by individual behaviours um, collectively aggregating into a certain culture, maybe a sceptical culture or a culture that's very hands-off within the boardroom that allows bad decisions or poor oversight. So it's not individuals' intentions, but it's collective outcomes within a board, especially around decision-making and its willingness to have oversight. Um, uh, also within the boardroom, they have uh, things that lead to failure are the processes for decision-making. These are people who have access to all the information that the organisation is willing to provide, but it's just too much. They have an hour to make a, a, a really complex decision in, and they're just not going to be overall of the detail. The management team has all the detail and can provide the board what they like. So the board needs to have powerful decision-making and analy- uh, analysis processes and often boards don't 
approach that in a perhaps um, a formal or uh, methodical manner. So decision-making at the board level can sometimes be a little ad hoc. And so boards fail through not being aware of how they are making decisions. They fail through um, poor behaviours, mostly in terms of what's the mindset and culture that is created in the boardroom. So that's how board failure happens. Mm. And I understand that you contribute to and facilitate AICD's advanced courses in director behaviour and managing dynamics in the boardroom. Through these courses, you explore how decisions are made and, and look at some of the consequences of those decisions. So how how would you suggest we best support directors towards good governance? Okay. Um, what's important here is that directors tend not to want to take on coaches. Mm-hmm. That's an important point. Many of these people are um, have been at the top of their game. They perhaps had coaches as executives. They, they got to the top. And at this point, they're feeling perhaps um, that who would coach them? You know, they're at the top. Who would, who would offer that advice? And a number of them are in the time in their career where they don't really necessarily want to face some of the demons. They had to do that when they were in uh, in their executive roles. So uh, they're hoping that perhaps they're a fully formed, perfect decision maker at this point. So coaching um, is, is only acceptable to a, a, a particular type of director. So we still coach directors, but not many of them seek it. Whereas with executives, it's a relatively common um, request, and the primary difference for an executive is they still have um, they still have their um, goals that they need to achieve. They're targeted towards their bonuses or whatever else, and their success and failure is highly visible, and they'll be held to account for that. So coaching seems I, I'll do anything to improve my performance because it's visible, and I'm bonused on it, and my whole career lies on it. Uh, a, board, a director doesn't have that same sort of visibility in terms of outcomes and their performance. So coaching is not a big deal. But if the question is how do we help coaches, uh, sorry, how do we help directors um, as coaches, what can we do? First point for me was um, if I'm working with boards, one of the key things I want to work with is or want to train them in or help them with is providing peers feedback um, these are people who they need to influence, move with and and um, get on well with on a regular basis. They're, they're their peers. So I would be coaching or training the group of directors in how to provide each other feedback, how to do it regularly and how to do it to the point where they're providing the honest truth rather than uh, saccharine versions of that. So um, we can help directors by helping them to give each other feedback about their performance, their behaviour and their influence. I think the second thing we can do with boards that help them um, uh, in particular uh, from a coaching point of view um, is to train um, chairs in, in how to support groups in decision in collective decision-making and how to support groups using um, different models of decision-making, intuitive models, more rational and methodical models, because boards are often dealing with decisions with such complexity that sometimes they need to use gut feel as part of their analytical toolkit. Um, so training chairs on how to run meetings such that those different decision-making models can be brought to the fore in decision-making and boardroom meetings. So training uh, chairs. I think the third area for me was um, coaches can actually train collectively a board or help a board gain deeper insight into its own dynamic, the boardroom or their their own group dynamic. And that might be using things, models like... um, 
team development models and um, doing a survey with the group and providing them feedback about the level of trust and honesty in the room, the level of commitment to each other, the level of uh, willingness to step up and provide negative feedback, et cetera, that sorts of stuff that you would do in a team development activity by doing an analysis and then providing feedback to the group for them to recognise where they're at. Um, uh, doing a collective profiling for the group, so pro- profiling using some psychometric tools, whatever they may be, personality values, whatever you like, and showing the group what they look like as a group and identifying are there any collective blind sites, uh, blind spots. Um, an example might be you may have a board which is full of people on a personality scale that have high, uh, low adjustment, highly passionate driven people, but a tendency to be disappointed and get a little bit of moody and, and um, at times probably a little angry and annoyed and frustrated with each other. So if you have a group of people that predominantly have that and you're able to feed back, you guys are passionate, what's the downside of that? And allow the board themselves to make some commitment within the boardroom about how they interact with each other. Um, You might have noticed in my theme of of how to support boards, essentially the board is a decision-making collective. It's a collective brain. um, And the most powerful coaching we can do is train the brain, train the brain, uh, the collective brain how to manage itself, which means give them tools to start making, setting expectations and making commitments between each other rather than the individual coaching that we're more familiar with at the executive level. So, Rob, we're starting to get a sense of the sort of work you're doing at the board level. Could you share with our listeners one or two examples of a specific scenario or or two where you've been engaged to work at the board level and the sorts of outcomes that you've been able to achieve? Okay, very good. I might might start one uh, with one which perhaps um, coaches would be more familiar. Perhaps people have done team development, uh, and and so I mean this might resonate for many listeners. Um, One of the things about boards, we need to remember this, or a couple of things about boards, we need to remember. Number one, these are people that don't know each other particularly well. They rarely see each other uh, once a month at the most. Sometimes they're actually put on boards for a particular role. They might represent unions, for example, or they might be the representative of the venture capitalist that's funding the business, or they might be a community rep. Uh, so people have particular roles there. And not everyone actually understands what go- is the difference between governance and, and managing a business. Um, so people that don't know each other don't always know their role and at times come with not so much hidden agendas but varied agendas. And yet as a board, they need to collectively land on what is most um, uh, what is most important for this business for us to focus on. And they need to be looking out for a collective understanding or creating a collective understanding of what is in the best interest of this business and always pursue that. So people who don't know each other, people who don't agree necessarily on what's what's the right thing to focus on, and people who don't always know their role have to do this collective thing. So it's a relatively complicated thing to do. Uh, and yet, when I look sometimes with groups, I use a basic inter- uh, boards. I, I might use a basic intervention that many team development guys are familiar with, and that is let's set some ground rules on how we are to have discussions. Um, so, as I said, lots of team development people would be quite familiar with this. It's sitting down with the group and saying, yeah, what's the purpose of this board? Uh, what's your goal? What do your meetings look like? Very good. What's some ground rules of the way you would like to discuss or topics or to progress those discussions or interact with your colleagues? So let's set some ground rules. And once those ground rules are set, how do we make them live? So we're setting um, some agreements around how people are to transact their role in the boardroom. 
Um, and primarily, you set those ground rules so that over time people gain trust and respect of each other because people follow the rules. And when the rules are followed, trust and respect emerges. I can predict what you'll do. That's something I can see you then see you as reliable because you'll follow the rules. And then we actually start forgetting the rules because we don't need them anymore because our foundation now, our common ground is a degree of trust and respect that I can um, say things to you and you'll respond appropriately in a productive manner that helps us move forward. So establishing ground rules with the group. Now, that would probably be one of my most basic interventions I would do with the boards. But when you think about it, you often use those sorts of tools with most of your work. So I think about it, uh, that's probably um, about 30% of my work I might do that, uh, at least as an initial intervention with a board. If I take a little bit further and say, what else might I do with a board? Um, I'm thinking about a board I work with um, a while back. And one of the issues they were facing was um, it was in a highly regulated industry uh, where community expectations were very high and they were facing um, uh, rorts within their business. Uh, people were um, pursuing um, bonuses using nefarious acts, selling stuff to people they shouldn't be selling, the sorts of stuff you might hear in a Royal Commission, some of the behaviour in the organisation. And this board said, how can we oversight that? How can we know about that? If we ask people, they lie. It's hidden information. And yet we are going to be held accountable for that behaviour. Even asking management, they would say, management, usually you're supposed to oversight that. Management would go, how can we? People will lie to us. We're, we're caught. So the board and management were asking, well, we can't be responsible for our, our risk culture, the behaviour of individuals within our organisation. How can we do that? Especially because they're going to lie to us. It's all tricky. And my response to that, of course, is yes, but that's the expectation of the community and of your stakeholders that you will. You're, who, if not you, who, who then? Who does this? And so board coming to terms with how might it actually deal with situations where it doesn't have access to clear, precise information and what might it do about that and how might it hold management accountable for that? Because to tell the truth, management is being a little twee if it is to say that, oh, we didn't know that banana economy was going on down below and that people were trading off or stealing our materials or treating our clients badly so that they could increase their bonuses. It's not true. <laughs> management is aware of it at times, but because... And I'm not saying management's evil. I'm saying management is oriented towards producing the outcomes the board wants and shareholders wants. So profit is king sometimes. Um, cutting costs is king. And management at times is tolerant of particular behaviours that still achieves that outcome but perhaps might burn other areas. So how does a board deal with that? And so part of my role as an org psych was to help boards look at what are some of the metrics we look for and cross-reference against other metrics rather than just relying on the engagement score from the organisation or using 360 feedback to see whether there's anything going on. Um, how do we actually go below the surface and look at the shadow culture, the behaviours that people won't want to talk about but still exist in the organisation? How does the board get a bit of a finger on the pulse for that and how do they hold management accountable for that? And specifically around coaching, there's, it sounds like there's a lot of things you do and a lot of um, areas of expertise that you have. I'm wondering how you define the type of coaching that you do if someone was to ask you at a you know, yeah. at a barbecue on the weekend. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I am a particular type of coach. I, I come from a particular bent. Um, so I'm an org psychologist coach, if we would look at it that way. So in particular, if I looked at my body of knowledge I apply to my work, uh, I am 
pretty decent at psychometrics, so I can measure the man, the woman, understand motives, help them understand and gain insight into what drives them, what works well, what behaviours they are talented in, what areas they are not, uh, whether they have EQ and what they need to develop if they don't. So psychometrics, deep insight into self, uh, understanding of how they might change self, um, so providing feedback, for example. The second thing that I, um, I, I suppose an org site can do is focus how, what does performance look like uh, at an individual level? That's that first part of perhaps. But what does it look like collectively and how do you create systems to, to drive that? Not just the leadership behaviour you might do as an individual, but how might you create some of the monitoring systems or the work processes or the organisational structural elements, you know, sub-teams, uh, to ensure that people are on, on track. Um, how do you lead without having to be in the room um, using systems processes, those sorts of things. So how um, performance comes through not just individual behaviour but also the systems that support that. Um, I suppose that's my second area. And my third area is what does collective behaviour look like and how do you uh, take responsibility for that? It's quite common, I recall, a CEO telling me, how can I be responsible for um, 5,000 pe people's sense of satisfaction in their work? How can I be held responsible for that? I don't know any of these people. I don't speak with them. How can I be responsible for that? And, of course, I turned around and said, well, you are. You, know, you By saying what you just said, you, you, that doesn't negate the fact that you are will be held responsible for it. So you better figure out some ways. So all this leader thought was that as a leader, all they do is tell people what to do. And the, the words that came out of their mouth was the only responsibility that they had. And, of course, they were responsible for all of the business systems, processes, um, the way the organisation, policies, the way the organisation led itself, not just through their individual behaviour. So... The CEO needed to know that. I've forgotten the question. <laughs> I think we're getting oh, a the, sense of, you know, how you define your style of coaching good. or your approach. Yeah. Very good. I think the, the last part of my approach is um, uh, perhaps what I'm not. Um, and that would be I'm, I'm not a, a mentor per se, yeah. I'm not a mentor. Um, I'm not an ex-CEO. I'm an org psych. I'm not an ops manager. I don't give advice in areas where um, perhaps your, your business may improve. I'm not there to generate initiatives with you uh, unless they relate to culture, um, leadership and behaviour. Um, so I don't. I come from a particular bent and that's org psychology and how human beings interact with systems to produce outcomes which are beneficial to the organisation and society. Um, uh, and individual change and group change within that. So I, I come with a very particular bent. I'm not a counselling psychologist, so I'm not an org psych who happen to be a counsellor, so I don't tend to sit there and help people commiserate through their problems very much. I, I'm a little bit more technical than that, which kind of means my... Um, my coaching and guidance often is time limited uh, to individuals gaining insight about themselves, time limited and often focused. So I may work with a, a, a client, um, an executive, a, a director around a very particular role. For example, I might coach a chair, a chair who's having difficulty managing their board or their relationship with the CEO. And I might do some of the psychometrics around that, but I'll also be focusing particularly on that. I'm not the jack of all trades coach where someone will come and ask, can you help me with this, can you help me with that? Generally, I'm not. I mean, I can do that, but that's not my best talent. I tend to focus more on the org psych element. But as you probably have heard in some of my conversation, the org psych element bleeds into almost every part of the business. So I probably have something to say on most things, but I don't 
have the the last word on most things. I have the human interaction with system and, and productivity word. There's a whole lot of other elements, IT, um, law, legal, um, finance that I have very little to say on generally. And so you've touched on a lot of areas that inform the way that you work and, you know, we're starting to get a sense of, of them now. There are so many fields, knowledge bases and pieces of research that you would need to assimilate to be able to apply in a practical way. And I appreciate this is a very big question and I don't want you to give away all of your methodology, but how do you actually assimilate all of that information and, and all those bodies of knowledge to be able to work with someone practically? Very good. Well, there is no methodology to give away, so that's fine. <laughs> um, at the heart of it, and I think a lot of coaches um, will and consultants would respond directly to this themselves, it's the idea that every problem is unique. So there's a, there's a customizability, which has the upside of, you know, I have a unique talent of being able to bring information together. And if you're good at doing that, then you do well with customization. It has the downside that I, I can't actually replicate most of my interventions because they're also unique. So someone says, what do you do generally here? And I go, um, lots of different things. Depends on the circumstance. So if you think about you, you go to a doctor, normally they will give you, a, and, and of course psychology is from a medical model version at least or partially, they'll give you, they'll ask a bundle of questions about your symptoms. You'll say, my knee hurts. And they don't give you the knee hurting intervention. They'll say, does it hurt like this? Does it hurt like that? When does it hurt? How does it hurt? Does this hurt? And through those um, diagnostic uh, of symptoms and, and consequences, they'll say, okay, this is the form of intervention you need. You don't need medication, you need to go see the physio. Whereas I'm, so I will then do that. And the question there becomes sometimes at the end of that um, diagnostic process, I might go, um, your problem, as best I can define it, has elements of leadership associated with it or whatever else is my body of knowledge. But I can also see it has heavy requirements around other technical functions, such as I can see there's actually some marketing and communications weaknesses here. And that's not my body of knowledge. I can hint at it uh, from a human point of view and what people information people need generally, but there are specialists in that area. So I'll end up being um, offering an intervention that helps and often kickstart perhaps where people are at, and then I'll have to, um, oh, me or my um, uh, my client will, will often bring in other specialists, which, again, is part of my time-limited uh, role in interventions. Um, the different bodies of knowledge you draw upon, um, I have, as most professionals do, I have professional development requirements every year. I think mine are about 100 hours. Um, there are months when I've done that 100 hours within the first week in terms of professional development, uh, research, um, self-education, um, sourcing models, sourcing theory, reading articles. Essentially, I don't do it um, willy-nilly. I, only, I, don't, I'm not, I don't enjoy reading um, academic articles except if there's a problem at hand. So um, when I'm doing my diagnosis, I'll just be drawing upon the literature all the time in the diagnostic phase and that helps me to shape up the, the, the nature of the problem and which helps me then to shape up the nature of my interventions. Lots and lots of commitment to professional development there. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing is I don't ever write it up, so sometimes you have to write it up for professional PD points and the, the proof's a bit of a pain. I, I actually, I, I think I said that wrong. I said 100 hours in a week. I wouldn't do 100 hours in a week. That is crazy. Uh, I'll do it in a month. The yeah, month's yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll okay. do, do a month, a, a year's um, PD in a month, Yeah. And I read in, in preparation for our conversation today that your primary goal is really about creating alignment and synergy between people and organisational systems. 
And that the purpose of that is really about high performance emerging and, and being sustained. So in your from your perspective, what, or maybe it's more of a who, who is responsible for enabling this alignment and synergy to happen? Okay. Um, the, the, the easiest answer here is that it's not me. I'm, I'm a guide and a support. It's probably not the coach, the consultant or anything like that. We have bodies of knowledge which can help in that. Uh, it's probably the executive if I look at um, who creates the the business systems, the business model, the machine that produces an outcome from from a company point of view, it, and who oversights that and who um, tink, uh, tinkers with that to make sure it's efficient, it's an executive team. It's a CEO and their colleagues in, in the C-suite. They're responsible for it. And in fact, most of my work with boards will be to make sure that they hold the management team, the executive team responsible for that. Um, but if I was to dig down and say, what does that mean? You know, the alignment between human beings and the output that they produced and ensure that that system um, is sustainable. It actually means um, human beings don't want to be cogs in a wheel, as we all know. Um, human beings essentially at their heart seek meaning in life and they seek a sense of contribution to a greater whole. Uh, a la something larger than themselves. So when I think about how do we create um, uh, that kind of alignment between human beings and the work that they do and the outcomes that produce value for the community around us, I think about the how do we lead and create companies that create meaning for its workers and create a sense of contribution to a greater whole. And we know when this is in place that workers will basically do it as a volunteer job. They, you know, pay will be somewhat irrelevant to them, and it should be, because in the end, this is actually expressing who they are and who they want to be. It gives them great heart. So work actually becomes a calling rather than a, than a tedious act you have to do to pay for the rent so you can buy a beer at the end of the day. So I'm looking, how do you create that? And I suppose I'm, uh, from a governance point of view, uh, one of my key roles in recent years has been reminding directors that our stakeholders and shareholders don't expect us to grind our cogs into the ground in terms of the people that we have. They're not just grist for the mill. There's an expectation that we're all part of a system and that system must be wholesome. And to be sustainable, human beings must be able to live with it and thrive within it. And that's the ultimate sustainability. It's about does this do well for human beings? Mm. And if it does and produces the outputs it needs, then that's the ultimate sustainability. And although I would love to end our conversation on purpose and meaning and contribution <laughs> and thriving and all of those things you mentioned, I am also interested in asking you a question about uh tools and psychometrics, because I'm aware that you also hold directorship roles with an international supplier of clinical assessment tools and another with a psychometric testing firm. So I and our listeners would be keen to hear as well how you see assessment tools and psychometrics complementing coaching in the future. Okay. Well, to answer that question, I might break down what psychometric tools are, um, just from a psychologist's point of view, perhaps less the clinical psychologist, more the org psychologist's point of view. Essentially, um, if I think about human beings and how we measure them, um, using psychometrics, uh, I think about um, three areas of measurement, just broadly, and they break down into lots of little subcomponents, but essentially broadly. First area is um, abilities. 
what you can do. So IQ, intelligence, is an ability. EQ is an ability. Hand-eye coordination is an ability. So what are the capacities that the human has? And normally these are typically associated with some hardwired elements. IQ's got an, IQ has a, a, an element which is hardwired. You're kind of born with it. I mean, you can increase your knowledge, but in terms of your processing speed with that knowledge, it tends to be hardwired into you. So abilities, what a human being can do. And some people can be uh, um, Tiger Woods as a golfer, some can't because hand-eye coordination is too poor. These are abilities. The second area that we can measure is um, what we might call personality slash um, values. Uh, And this is the area of... um, uh, um, all the personality tools, derailers, value tools, disk models, MBTIs, and these speak very much to um, categorising human behaviours and um, the habitual behaviours that individuals have. Um, uh, what is this set of tools really good at predicting? This set of tools is really good at predicting how people will interact with others, how they will lead, um, how they will deal with difficult circumstances, but predominantly it's a social interaction. The set of tools that tell us how we will move with others. So that's the second group of tools. So the first one's abilities. The second one has to do with uh, some sort of personality slash values. So the third um, uh, set of psychometrics has much more to do with behaviours and competencies. So these are what is a person going to do and how might they apply themselves to the task at hand. There's elements of personality that kind of indicate that, but personality and values tend to be motivators or contextual elements on how a person delivers their competencies in their role. And we're not just talking about jobs here. It can be competencies to um, be a kind father or or to be a good teacher or to be a, a caring partner. So the competencies are a full range and thinking there. So it's knowledge, skills, and the behaviours that deliver upon them. So those are kind of three areas that we would we would measure. And most psychologists and, and, and most practitioners in general tend to like the tools that they're familiar with, um, and, and which and I'm no different from anyone else. But on average, in my work in coaching or in providing um, groups insight into their dynamics. Um, I tend to choose the tool that that, that suits the purpose. Um, so, for example, uh, um, if it comes to personality and I'm using it with a group, um, while I don't particularly like the Myers-Briggs typology model, it's been around a long time and some groups and some leaders are um, uh, highly affiliated with it and like it and love it. So they might ask me to run a group uh, development activity or to look at perhaps ground rules again. And if they ask me to use a personality, I'd say, which one are you familiar with? And they say Myers-Briggs. I go, I grip my teeth and go, no worries, I can use this. Um, because essentially psychometrics and the way you use it in coaching is primarily an insight provision tool. So its aim is to gain traction uh, in terms of a person's self-understanding themselves or their group. Um, So in some respects, it doesn't matter what tool you use, as long as the tool gets some penetration and the primary um, criteria I'd use for a tool is its acceptability by the audience. And as an, a psychologist, I can make most of these tools get me enough penetration. Even there's some that I wouldn't necessarily touch with a barge. I wouldn't touch with a barge because they're quite difficult to use or they don't they don't actually work very well. But the most tools that we know in the familiar parlance, they're actually quite usable. Um, some are better than others, but the the one that's acceptable to my audience would be the one they would use. And I think about the tools that I use most at the governance level. In particular, um, we can assume this, that from the ability point of view, these are all smart people. Can't always assume our EQ, but we can assume smart. 
from a competency point of view, these are people who've hit the top of their game as CEOs, CFOs, whatever it is. So they know how to do that. We can't assume they're good at necessarily leading or bringing people together or collaborating, but we can assume a lot of the other ones. Um, and in fact, my primary um, form of intervention is to increase insight of the director themselves or of the group about their own internal dynamics, what goes on behind their scenes. And so if I th- look at the three sets of types of tool sets I'd use, um, I- I'd focus more heavily on personality. So I might use something like a Hogan um, personality inventory or um, or a... Um, OPQ, uh, personality inventory, my preference is Hogan. Um, and I might use a derailer tool to look at some of the more difficult behaviours that we sometimes see in leadership groups. Uh, and I use the Hogan dera- uh, development survey in that regard. But again, there are other tools to use. Um, so I would use perhaps that second um, crop of, of tools, the um, personality and value ones. And why is that? Uh, because essentially from a board point of view, the primary um, method of them making uh, of them producing anything is through interactive discussions with colleagues. So that's how they produce decisions. If we look at what shapes interactive discussions with colleagues, IQ does, but I've taken that for granted. Mostly it's about personality and how they use that to influence and so personality is a dominant uh, tool I might use in that regard. But my primary, I, I see the tools as a tool. I don't see them as reality. I don't see some of the pigeonholing we may use uh, with tools as, as perhaps the main outcome. I'm actually seeing deeper insight by the individuals and the group about their colleagues as the primary outcome I'm aiming for. And if I get a little bit of that and they're actually starting to see some of their own, ah, oh, yes, when we do that, we all tend to go like this. I can see that in our discussions. I'm going, that's what I wanted the tool for. Wonderful. Thank you, Rob. We're coming to the end of our conversation today or come to the end of the conversation. It's just been really, really valuable. Uh, I know for me and I probably speak for all of our listeners in terms of just hearing from your experience and sharing your insights and a few stories and also, you know, some suggestions there on a range of topics. I mean, we've touched on everything from dynamics in the boardroom to psychometrics, um, the application of org psych in coaching and a whole range of things. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for IACL Coachcast today and uh, we look forward to a chat sometime again in the future. Thanks for having me. We hope you liked today's episode. If you'd like to get the next episode automatically, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We would love to hear from you. Please leave your feedback, questions and a five-star review. Share this podcast with whoever you think would benefit from the topics we cover. Thank you to our hosts and special guests for the great insights gained in today's episode.